host Gary Dagenpat meets with entrepreneurs to discuss their path to small business ownership, including leadership, management, and the risks and rewards that accompany entrepreneurship. Gary, CEO of Main Street Business Group, combines his C-suite and entrepreneurial experiences to explore the extraordinary odysseys of small business owners. And now, through these compelling conversations, he brings to entrepreneurs, operators, managers, and would-be business owners useful insights and tools to help you on your own journey. Welcome to Small Business, an entrepreneur's journey. I'm host Gary Dagenpat, and today I'm speaking with high-energy businesswoman and a broker agent for Transworld Business Advisors, my good friend, Linda Broom. Hi, Linda. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me today. It's a privilege to be here. Well, thank you. So tell us a little bit about your background. Before we jump into Transworld and the situations that you deal with with small business owners, tell us, Linda, a little bit about your background. Right. Thank you, Gary. Uh, so I out of college, I actually uh, was hired into the hotel business with Marriott Hotels. And I went through their management training and their sales successful sales training program. I worked in all areas of the hotel, from the front desk through the convention floor into catering and sales. And I loved it because it gave me an opportunity to get to really know the, the whole hotel industry, even some of the back of the house positions that I had. And what I also loved is I worked with corporate America at that time. I worked at a couple, I worked at some high-end resorts. And so I had the privilege of handling Los Angeles corporate and New York corporate. So that's the two areas I would travel to. And I got to meet, you know, people within Chanel and Pfizer and then uh, Warner Brothers. And what we would do is their conferences, conventions, and seminars. And it was cool because I got to learn a little bit about each business because we would do in handling their seminars. I even got an opportunity to work with Tony Robbins way back when he first started in the, in the late 80s and early 90s. So I did that and got to know a little bit about it. So I've always, always loved economic development and businesses. Uh, let's see. In 2016, I was doing employee engagement and I met a gentleman that was a broker business broker, told me a little bit about what he was doing, asked me if I'd come on board. And it took about a year because I really enjoyed what I was doing with companies with employee engagement. 2018, I came on board, end of 17, beginning of 18, I came on board with him and have been doing it ever since. Haven't really looked back because I've been able to take all the experience of what I've done in the past towards this with all the businesses. And I have just enjoyed it and love kind of melding the buyer and the seller, finding the right buyer and seller to make the business continue the legacy of what the sellers built over time. Sure. Before we get into the situations that you deal with, with small business owners, tell us a little bit about Transworld, what your services are, how long the company's been around, where y'all are located. Share with us a little bit about that. Absolutely. So Transworld Business Advisors started over 40 years ago in Florida. So if you sell a business in Florida, you're probably selling it with Transworld. About 25, 27 years ago, the, a gentleman named Andy Cagnetti bought it from the original owners, and then he continued to build it. And 12 years ago, he realized that other parts of the country weren't as successful at selling businesses as they were. So he turned around and franchised the Transworld uh, model. And currently, we have over 300 offices in the United States and Canada. We also have offices in London, Australia, and South Africa. We will help the main thing is we do Main Street businesses primarily. So Linda, are these franch are these franchises? Yes, they're franchises, correct. So they're all individually owned and operated. So for example, mine is individually owned and operated. We have the Dallas Fort Worth area. The owners also own the Denver 
office, which they've owned for over 10 years. And the last five, six years, they've been the most successful trans world office in all the franchises. So it's been great to be able to partner with them and bring them them to Dallas-Fort Worth. And so you guys do both the buying and the selling. You know, what are some of the, I'm sure there are some very smooth situations where you're dealing with small business owners. They're running that business well, it's profitable. You know, the buyer comes in, does due diligence, and the sale gets consummated and relatively smooth. I suspect on other occasions, there's more difficulties that come about. Can you share with us a little bit about some of your experiences? Yeah, absolutely. The smooth ones are awesome. They're far and few between, to be honest with you. And the reason for that is, you know, many, many, many fold, many different reasons. Clean financials seems to be the biggest thing. When entrepreneurs begin their business, often they love the business they're getting into. They're getting into a restaurant sure. or they're getting into become a chiropractor or they're going to run a dry cleaner. Whatever their passion is, they get into it because they like the idea of being in that business, but they don't necessarily understand the business side of it. And so unless they've taken accounting classes or my suggestion is always hire a bookkeeper, that's the first thing. Hire that bookkeeper because expenses need to be in line. And they need to be clean with very few personal expenses added back into it so that the buyer really knows what they're buying. Uh, that's right. probably the biggest concern. So are there instances where you're going into a business and as you start to audit the business, no income statement, no cash flow statement, no balance sheet, do you come across those circumstances? Um, usually they have a little something, but I've had ones that don't even know what a balance sheet is. They have a profit and loss statement and that's all they know. And they have an extra five or $6,000 in their bank account or 10,000 in their bank account. They feel like they're good to go, but the, it's not reeled in properly to, to really, um, understand exactly what there is. I'm dealing with that right now with a store that I, I actually listed it two years ago. And when I first looked at their financials, I was like, oh my goodness, their cost of goods were four or $500,000 and their sales were right around just under a million, but their cost of goods was so high. And I'm like, what is going on? What are you guys buying? Come to find out they put their payroll in their cost of goods. Wow. So a lot of people do that. And I've talked to accountants, CPAs that have said, yeah, we'll put them in there. But the problem is a buyer wants to know what the payroll is. That's a huge fixed uh, cost for them. So they want that broken out. The cost of goods should really just be what the goods that are costing, you know, fits, whatever it is, whatever the inventory is to provide services or, or products for the business. So things like that, where they put a lot into cost of goods and it's just a miscellaneous. Well, unless the, unless the, uh, the labor is directly associated with those costs of goods, then they should go in there. Everything else is, is outside of that. So what do you do to what do you do to educate them? So you go into a business, you see that they have very limited financials. You know that you have to get their clarity on that so that any potential buyer coming in has that kind of visibility. How do you help these folks out? Do you guys provide accounting for them or how do you help them? So we don't. I always say I'm not a CPA, I'm not an attorney, but what I say is that I've got resources. So one of the reasons I do a lot of networking is to meet my my power partners. I call them power partners. So those would be CPAs, bookkeepers, attorneys, insurance people, real estate people. So I work with all these power partners in order to give the give my clients uh, the best that they can they can get. So I usually will recommend two or three bookkeepers that I've worked with that I feel are good that can get their books cleaned up, and they'll turn around and reconcile their accounts for them. 
Okay. So, and Linda, I know that you guys are doing the buying and selling, but you also help businesses get up to snuff, if you will, in the event that they want to sell two years out, three years out, five years out. How do you go about helping them? And I guess a lot of that, what does that have to do with the operationally you help them, sales and marketing? What do you all do? So usually what happens is someone comes to us and they're considering selling. And we say to people, please come to us between one and three years out. That's ideal because then we can really help them. I do get a lot of people that are like, I want my, you know, there is either a medical issue or they're, um, or they're just want to get out of it. They're tired and want to retire and they want to sell right away. We'll do a high value about We'll do a high level kind of valuation with them. But most of them, we do what we call BOVs or broker opinion valuations. They give us their information all their financials for three years, and then we'll come up with a valuation for them. If the valuation is not where they want it to be, which often happens. I'm smiling because I've got to imagine that there's business owners, when you come back and you say it's valued at X, you know, they they just can't believe it. They think it's so much more. Right. I had one. It was, I valued it at three and a half million. And the guy and the guy said, I want, I don't want less than five. I'm like, okay. So in that case, what we need to do is work with them over the next couple of years to get the valuation up to the right level. So we actually, within Transworld, or actually within our offices, our Denver and Dallas office, we have something called the Exit Factor. And one of our owners, Jessica, actually put this program together when she was up in Denver. It took about four years to put together. And we've had several, we've had many businesses go through it. And we actually make a guarantee that they'll have at least 10 times the cost of the class to, or the class, yeah, the, the webinar really, to add to their value. So it's basically looking at seven or eight of the areas in which you can grow a business. And we'll, after we've done that valuation, we pretty much can start to figure out where they're lacking. And as we have an interview with them and talk with them, we'll figure out whether it's you know human capital, their employees, if it's a marketing situation, processes, back office systems. They don't have systems. A lot of times, Companies don't have systems sure. in place, especially sure. small businesses. Yeah. 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 So so a lot of it is, so you guys are going to help them through that program. You're helping them to drive revenue, contain costs. And so you look at everything that's happening under their roof to help them do that. So the, the next step is, are they coachable? You know, oftentimes you can come in with well-laid plans. You have experience doing it. You have a track record of doing it. But a small business owner, and, and, and it could be any business leader, if they are resistant to that training, to the implementation of that program, can be very difficult helping to make them profitable and then driving up that value. So true. That is so true, Gary. Everyone thinks they're coachable until you give them something to do. And then there is homework involved in that. You know, there's things that they're going to have to implement during the month in between. It's actually a nine to 12 month program. And there's homework in the sense there could be some reading or there could be some things that they need to do within their business. And we will, you know, explain what needs to happen. And next month, sometimes they've done it and sometimes they haven't. Like I, I had this sure. spa that wanted to, he, she was at, uh, she was at 650,000 valuation. She said, I need a million and a half. In order, she'd been through a divorce. And this is just it. Life happens to people. And so she'd been through a divorce. He got whatever he got. She got all the debt. And so she's like, I've got all this debt. So now we've got to figure out how to get that debt paid off, how to get her moving forward and get, and a lot of it in that industry is going to be employee driven, keeping estheticians and nurse practitioners to be able to do the um, things that she needs. So she 
is going to work in that program and she's got homework to do each, each month to make sure that she moves the business forward. So when you look at the, the experience that you have with small business owners, what do, and I know it's going to be different for all of them, but what do you see missing from a leadership or a management standpoint with many of the small business owners? And then what's your advice on overcoming those challenges? So a lot of times it's the systems. They don't have systems in place. And so a lot of companies, okay, for example, service industries, they, it's the HVAC guy, the plumbing guy, the fencing guy, and it's a guy. It's really hard to sell a guy business. One, one person that you're the employee, you're the business. When you leave, sure. what happens? Chiropractor is sure. another good example. So I always coach. In fact, I'm coaching a chiropractor right now. That I've been coaching for about a year and a half, and he has brought on massage therapists. He's brought on another chiropractor that's picking up the extra in his business, and he's brought on a, um, a bookkeeper, receptionist kind of person that's handling all the insurance and what have you. So he's now, when I met him, it was him and a, another gal that was kind of doing the front, but his wife, but his wife was doing all the bookkeeping. Like get your wife out of the business if you really want to sell this in the next three to five years. So we just kind of, I've been coaching him on what he needs to do to get this business to the point where he's more irrelevant and really in a chiropractic business, a little tough, but let's go, for example, I have a wheel restoration business and with them, they have over the last two years pulled themselves away so that the business runs without them. So it's not them doing the, doing it. They've got the employees in place. They've got the management in place. So they pulled themselves away. And they, I can sell that as a, I, I can sell it as an absentee, but really there's no such thing as an absentee business. It's really a sure. semi-absentee. And so I say it's a semi-absentee business. I mean, the, the wife still does some of the payroll. The husband is in there for three or four hours a day and he's just there because he has nothing else to do. So that's the way you want to you want to get your business set up if you really want to sell it at the best value because buyers want to hear that they don't have to be there every single day most of the time. Sure. So when you look at you go in and you're helping these business owners with their operations again, sales, marketing, the operations component, finance. The other piece is, and you see this in many businesses, not just small businesses but the human capital piece. So when you start with the, when you look at onboarding, recruiting, and then once the employee has been hired, the training, the culture, which includes ongoing development. Listen, Linda, you and I both know this. You see this missing in large companies. We know this is missing oftentimes in small businesses, sometimes because the owners don't know any better. And sometimes because the owners are the operators too, and they're just so immersed in what's happening hour to hour that it's tough to find time to do this very critical human capital component. How, how do you address that? Well, it's really good. And you know, I, I think about it every day. So I used to be an employee engagement, so which was a very difficult career to be in, in my opinion, because like you said, the CEO knows that something's wrong, but he's driving the boat and he knows what he doesn't know what he doesn't know what he doesn't know. And, and the problem is his culture is not where it needs to be. I have a daughter who's 26 years old. She's worked for two companies, but here in the Metroplex area, and both are a mess culturally. When she got to the first one, it was a little bit smaller. And over the three years, it really grew. And they brought in a lot of corporate people from corporate other corporate type 
kind of a horizontal industry and they're horrible and it's, they're horrible because the culture is so bad. And it's very, um, like everyone, they have, everyone had to vote for them to be in the top hundred and the survey they took, and it's supposed to be anonymous and it wasn't anonymous. And, and so the way they fire people. And so with us, the more of the people were working with these small businesses, <sighs> the culture is what it is by the time it gets to us, to be honest with you, the sure. cool thing is we can bring a buyer in that perhaps can change the culture a little bit and can like this, like for example, in this wheel restoration business, there's a great culture going on in that business, but they don't have the wherewithal to get a bigger warehouse where they could do more of what they do. And they don't have the wherewithal to provide healthcare. And so healthcare is a really big thing for all these employees. There's about 15 employees and they want that healthcare portion. This, these new buyers are going to come in in the next two years, get a bigger warehouse. They're going to be able to provide more. They're going to give allow for inv- advancement of the employees and provide health care. And so that's how we're going to pitch it to the new employees when the change switches over. Sure. So, well, on the on the recruiting front, you know, one, again, one of the difficulties, no matter the size of the company, is finding, hiring, retaining uh, top talent, including in small businesses the businesses that you work with, how do they go about doing the recruiting? And it's, do they use Colby Index? Is anybody using testing or surveys at the small business level? What is the process and what would you advise? Right now, I can tell you, I asked that question on almost all of mine. Almost all are using it, are using the online Indeed. And there's another one. <laughs> Indeed and not Monster. There's another one. Indeed's the one I know. I have a I have an organic cleaning business for sale that that's all she uses, and she gets great candidates. She says off of there. There's thing is that the buyer pool, the the employee pool is pretty big. If you can find the right people, there's a lot still sitting around doing nothing. But they're going to have to get out and get jobs soon. So there is a lot of employees that are that are not currently working. But Indeed, right now for most of my small businesses, my junk removal business, same thing. They're they're hiring them off of Indeed now. They're hiring them from veteran sites also because they hire veterans. But they're not. None of them I know that I'm aware of are using what you're talking about. So is it because that they don't understand the value of, again, whether it's a Colby index or whatever, the, the many different tests out there that, you know, retaining the one hiring, identifying, hiring and retaining the talent within their company goes a long way in producing not just the morale and the culture that you want, but eventually the financial outcomes that the company is looking for. Do you think they don't see it that way? It just becomes, it, in their mind, it's cost prohibitive. What's the challenge there? Honestly, I don't think they know about that. I really don't. Most of these are, uh, you know, I don't, not, I don't want to use the word mom and pop because that's not really fair. A lot of them were in corporate America before and they just got tired of being in corporate America. Some sure. of them were, but they were employees before yeah. they became business owners. So they don't even know that exists. And I haven't come across, uh, I haven't come across anybody that's struggling. Uh, I would say... The only one that really struggled my massage, my massage business, the therapy business, it was hard to find massage therapists for quite a while, but they go right to the schools or they try to recruit from other places. So that's a little bit different uh, niche. And some of my people, some of my businesses are more niche oriented also. And that they're not, I think it's just, um, they don't know what they don't know in that, in that part. Sure. And then I want to go a couple more things on the, the selling side. And then I want to move to the buying side. So with respect to sales and marketing and really driving revenue, how do you help 
the small businesses, especially those guys that may be a little bit behind or not as profitable as they like to be, how do you help them on that all critical front end of marketing and sales? So I would send them over to you. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you have, but you have people that you work with, right? On the okay. Right. And so that's what you do. You you identify hey, these guys are they're uh, they need to increase revenue. I see that their marketing is all over the place. There's not a a well thought out advertising campaign. I'm going to connect them to folks that I work with within my space, and then and then just take it from there. Are they ever resistant to that when you say, "Listen, you got to drive up that revenue, or you got to market differently"? Are they ever resistant to that, and do they not? You know, and again, if they don't take your guidance on that and the revenue stays where it is, where do you go from there? Well, I get both those that are resistant. So here, let's so back up a second. When I'm getting ready to list them, I tell them, I know that you have in your head that you're that you're selling this business, but you need to have in your head and your heart that you're going to continue this business for the next year because we do tell people it takes between. Used to be four to nine. We now say six to twelve. It takes between six and twelve months, on average. But Transworld's a little bit better. We're probably more like nine months. That seems to be about right between seven and nine months. Again, sometimes things sell in thirty-five days if it's a cash deal. But but my point is is that we, as far as as far, I recommend business coaches. I recommend what they need to do. Some will, some will, some won't. I try to explain to them that a that a buyer is going to be looking for a business that's trending upward, that's not stagnant. If it's plateaued, you know, they're like, well, where's the growth? Where can I find growth in this business? And so, you know, if they're, if the, and a lot of times businesses come to me and they don't have the capital, the working capital to put it into marketing. And that's where they know it needs to go. So when we put together an executive summary or a confidential information memorandum for the buyer to look at in the growth potential, we'll say, needs working capital for marketing. So when you tell them a buyer's coming in, obviously they're trying to sell their business. And then at some point, if the, the buyer has you know some level of interest, they're going to want to come in and do due diligence. Mm-hmm. Are these small business owners, are they ever reticent about having a potential buyer coming in to really look over their, you know, scrutinize their business, you know, the the actual facility, talking with managers, looking at the books. Or are they are they largely open to that? So most of the businesses I work with, because they're small businesses and they're worried about the competition, it's confidential. So their employees don't even know they're selling. Mm-hmm. So they don't just come in and talk to managers or employees. It's all done confidentially. Usually I come in as either a, um, a, a landlord, like what, um, I went into one of the stores. She could The owner couldn't be there. So she told the employee I was part of the landlord. I was coming in to look it over for insurance reasons. So I'll come in and what I, and I've brought in this, this couple to look through and to, to, and we can see as a massage business or this wheel restoration, whatever it might be. Um, we'll come in as uh, anonymous incognito, so to speak. So they don't get an opportunity usually to speak to employees. You do want to know if there's any key employees that need to stay on because that's important. But again, that's why you want to make sure that when you're getting ready to sell your business, you've delegated as much as you can to people, but that it's delegated. So there's just not one person there that if they quit, the business would go to, you know, would would disappear. Sure. Um, So we will, (laughs) we'll help them in any way we can to, 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 Okay, so let's go back to due diligence. So during due diligence, 
Sometimes they don't want their competition to know what their numbers are, but usually we've vetted the person and it's, if they're not the competition, which we really try to make sure that they're not, and that someone coming in, handing over bank statements, uh, handing over the uh, P&Ls, I've already given them a financial overview. And usually my financial overviews come from tax returns, which tend to be on the lower end because everyone wants to write off as much as possible, which is fine. And we'll have some addbacks in there. We'll need to explain any addbacks. You know, if they write off all four or five cell phones, or they write off, you know, their, their vacation trip to Europe, or they write off their kid's education or all their leased cars or whatever. We add that back and explain that those are not expenses that the buyer would incur. And so the due diligence is really about what are these ad backs in here? Um, I had a landscaping business. He put in a whole outdoor kitchen, patio, pool. So Linda, are, are these, are many of these uh, business owners running their personal lives through the business? Yes, we wow. tell them not to. The minute we get with them, we say, pull all the personal expenses out that you can. Now there's three years of personal expenses in a lot of them. So then that's what the due diligence is, Gary. It's going to be the add backs. Why are you adding back $18,000 in cost of goods? Well, because you know, here's his pergola and here's his you know built-in barbecue and TV setup and living room outdoors. So sure. as long as we can prove that, that's what we're doing. And so, of course, you you guys do a great job checking the background of potential buyers, ultimately having them sign non-disclosures before moving towards due diligence. Correct. Yeah, our okay. process is exactly that. Um, I'm blessed to be with this group because I actually have a gentleman who sends out, once someone requests or if I meet someone, I send them over their information. He sends out the NDA he has a quick call with them to kind of make sure that, um, you know, kind of who they are, what they're looking for, how much they're looking to spend. He kind of asks, you know, eight or 10 quick questions, puts that in the back office for us. Then he sends out that executive summary to give them an overview of the business. Sure. And then I'm connected with them. So there's some due diligence even done with us on one side. And then depending on what, you know, how, how much interest they show after that, we send them out a buyer profile. So, and then the last on the buying side, or on the selling side, rather, do they normally have succession plans in place? I'm assuming that the owners are going to exit once the sale is completed, or at least you know sometime thereafter, right? So you've got a transition period after the, the purchase is done. But is there succession planning internally so that once that owner exits the business, that the new buyer has somebody that has experience with that company operating that business? Or does it just, does the new buyer come in and are they generally operating it? And whether somebody stays or whether someone's in the, you know, was was uh, moved up to a leadership role or not, it really doesn't matter to them. Both ways. So, so let's address both of those. So on some of the smaller ones, most of mine don't have a succession plan. But if a bank is involved, it's going to require a business plan. So mm -hmm. the buyer, with the help of the information I give them from the seller, will put together, usually, the, are you familiar with the SBDC, Small Business Development Council? Uh, I am. Amazing people. I send them over to, for Tarrant County at Cynthia. I send them over there and she or one of their people will work with them to get a business plan in place based on what they've done in the past and where they think it's going. Some of my businesses, I have a, a, a kids tutoring a coding business. They've already they already have pro formas in place. 
Uh, if it's a franchise, sometimes the franchise has pro formas. And so here's what you need to do. You need to have, you know, to break even, you have to have 60 members for if it's membership based, you know, if you're going to, you know, depending on the size. So they come up with the size of the, the size plus what the fixed costs are and how many members it's going to take for the business to break even and then the the profit from there. So in, a, in my HVAC business have a succession plan? No, but he's willing to stay on for 30 to 60 days to make sure it moves forward. And then um, he's actually willing to maybe be on for three to six months because mm-hmm. he only has one employee and one part-time employee and himself. So in situations, yeah. let's go back to, we talked about that service side. Yeah. On the service industries, I encourage people to get another employee or two because you're selling those employees with your business and yeah. employees that you feel that are going to stay on with the new buyer so that they can rely on them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would assume that if in a in a really a technical know-how business like the one you're describing right now, the new owner is going to come in and, and is really going to have to have similar technical know-how, right? Because they're out in the field doing the work and so forth. If it's a technical industry, like, the, okay. And like, for example, with the HVAC business, I love that. But I have a great, that's a great business I have listed. The problem is I can't find anyone with the proper license. So a person with the license has to buy the business. I get a lot of people because he cash flows between 180 and $200,000 a year. So that's mm-hmm. a pretty good business. Someone likes to walk yeah. into that. The problem is, is I get a lot of people out of college that see the cash flow and they're thinking, oh, that's great. They don't realize that it's four years in the industry along with taking the certification sure. class and then the, yeah. and then the license class. Yeah. Thank you for listening to part one of our conversation with Linda Broom on small business and entrepreneur's journey. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others, post it on social media, rate and review it and subscribe to hear more of how Linda and Transworld business advisors help small business owners. Please tune in to part two of this episode.